learn from John chapter 7 that Jesus' ministry confirms Jesus' claims. Jesus' ministry confirms Jesus' claims. That is to say that, that what he did, the way he spoke, the way he taught, the way he acted, all was orchestrated to confirm the essence of who he was. And so you'll sometimes hear us refer to as Jesus' person and work. As if they go hand in hand, because in fact they do. His work is not possible. Were he not who he claimed to be? Were he not who he claimed to be, none of the things that we see in the New Testament as Jesus capable of doing are even possible. And so we continue to learn from John chapter 7 along with a watching crowd, along with a group of apostles about who Jesus is. Before we consider this text of scripture, let's bow before the Lord and ask for his help. Father, we thank you for the moments that we have together, and as we spend this time in your word, we pray that you would be glorified in our estimation. We May we understand you better and worship you in our hearts through this time, and then, Lord, we pray that you would use your word to draw us closer to your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you heard about deep fakes? Some of you may be familiar with that term. Others of you are going to go home and you're going to Google it this afternoon and you're going to be scared out of your mind. Deep fakes, it is a kind of new technological phenomenon where artificial intelligence can digest a large body of media. Uh, So, for example, uh, people who are famous, there's a lot of videos out there of them. There's a lot of samples of their voice. And so an artificial intelligence computer will take all of this data and it will amalgamate it 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 will uh, 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 get all of the data that it needs and then a deep fake is this this video or audio that is produced that is a convincing replica of that person so for example as the technology improves it will be harder and harder to distinguish what is genuinely a video of, say, the President of the United States or a global leader, and what is a computer-generated video saying whatever the creator of that video wants this, pup- this leader to say. Now, the sinister uses of deep fakes is what will scare you out of your mind, so think about it this way. It could very well be that a leader of a terrorist organization is taken out, he's killed. But yet, in some metaphorical sense, he lives forever because he lives inside of a machine that those who control can make him say whatever they want. The list of abuses for this kind of technology is tremendous and if you start studying it and hearing about where we're headed with this kind of technology it will it will scare you because it's going to get to the day where we don't even know what is true what is reality what is actual uh video of something that we're witnessing and what is a computer generated simulation thereof And so modern technology is getting ready to present us with some very unique wrinkles to what is an age-old problem. What is that age-old problem? What 
is truth. Who can I believe? What is trustworthy? Of course, in our day and age, we do have all of the, you know, the fact-checking and the fake news and the deep fakes and all of these complicating factors, but it really goes to the fundamental question of how do I know what is true? Who can I trust? Who can I put my confidence in? Well, the details, of course, were different in the ancient world, but the questions were the same. Jesus is the watershed question of all of history. Who is Jesus? Can we believe him? And in this passage of scripture, we see that very wrestling, chapter 6 and 7 that we've already considered together, are wrestling with the question about who Jesus is. So I'd like for us to start off by going to, to kind of the almost the end of chapter 7, and considering beginning in verse, verse 40, what is being discussed in Jesus' day. Therefore, verse 40, many from the crowd, when they had heard this saying, that is the claim that Jesus makes. Remember we talked uh, last week about that this was right in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, if you will. And then at the end of that festival, there is this climax where, where water is poured for the seventh day, water is poured out on the altar. And right in the midst of this context, Jesus cries out and, and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, verses 37 and 38. So he makes this claim, and many, verse 40, say, truly, this is the prophet. Now, this would be a term that was used by the Hebrews of that day to refer not just to another prophet that came on the scene, but the ultimate prophet to which all prophets looked. Uh, The one who would come that would fulfill all the longings of Israel. The one who would be the ultimate prophet who would save his people. Messiah would be another title for what they are saying here. And that is actually what they go on to say in verse 41. Others are saying this is the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah. Is this the one that was foretold? Is this the one that we've all been looking forward to? And many are reaching the conclusion that this is exactly who he says. Now, some object in verse 41. Will the Christ come out of Galilee? So they knew the immediate uh, history of Jesus, and apparently they did not understand his full birth narrative. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? Now we know the birth narrative, so we know how in fact both of these things could be true, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yet came out of Galilee. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Probably what John is referring to in verse 44 is the same thing that we saw in the previous 
passage where there's a group of people who want to say, ah, this is our Messiah. He's the one that we will set up as king, as ruler. They want to, to, to lay hands on him, not in a violent sense, but, but to extol him, to lift him up into a position of leadership and watch him squash the Roman government. It's probably what is being referred to here in verse 44. So there is this division. There is this confusion about who Jesus is, whether he was who he claimed to be. That's the context of chapters 6 and 7. Of course, we know the apostles are beginning to understand who Jesus is. Some in the crowd are beginning to understand who he is. And in some sense, even the leadership is beginning to see the impact of this promised one, Jesus. But of course, for them, the response is very Different. Now, right in the heart of this passage, we come to verse 17. And this verse may be perplexing to you. It may be a bit puzzling. So I want us to go back to verse 14 and kind of get a little bit of context and then understand verse 17 together. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Now again, remember the context. Jesus had sent his entourage on ahead so that he could come into the city of Jerusalem anonymously, as it were. So with no entourage around him and, and with no smartphones to pull out and find out exactly what Jesus looks like, he blended into the rest of the crowd. And so it's almost as if he came into the city incognito and suddenly they find him. There he is teaching in the temple. This is about the middle of the festival week that he begins to teach. You see in verses 11 and 12 that they are looking for him. Now in verse 15, the leadership is perplexed. You see, in that day, it, it, it required a tremendous time, many, many years of study to, to memorize, to digest, to learn the interpretations of the Torah. There was much formal education in the Jewish system, in the Jewish laws, in the, in the ways of, of Moses before someone would get up and teach. They were, the, the, uh, one who would be a rabbi, a teacher, would have been well known before he emerged as a teacher. Yet they look at this Jesus who is this, this Johnny-come-lately, this, this one who just appears on the scene, uh, the, the son of a carpenter, uh, this, this poor man who had had no formal training. How is it that he is standing in the temple and he has this comprehensive knowledge of the law? Well, of course, we know because we know who Jesus Christ is, that he, he understood the law of Moses well. And he understood it well because it was about him. He says, these are they which testify of me. So we see here in, in this chapter that Jesus is teaching, they are perplexed. In verse 16, Jesus answered and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus did his work in the power of the Father. In verse 17, he goes on to say, And if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, the, the teaching that he is giving, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own or on my own authority. So Jesus answers them that if someone really wants to know, 
concerning who Jesus is. Whether his claims are true, right? He says in the first part of the verse, if they will to do God's will, if their desire is to apprehend who Jesus really is, if they are submissive to God, then they will discover the truth about Jesus himself. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is not speaking on his own authority, he says, from himself. He's not speaking from himself on, in verse 18. He is not seeking his own glory. He is not self-serving. This is not a, a selfish means of teaching. He is not there to aggrandize himself only in so much as the Father magnifies him. The Father is magnified through the Son. What is he seeking? He's seeking God's glory. And so his claim here is true. It is not deceptive. He is, he is reiterating the doctrine of the Father. And, of course, he reminds the hearers that there must first be a heart of submission if one wills to do the will of God. And this leads us to a, a conundrum, a challenge, a tension that we have talked about many times before. During our Sunday school hour, we are considering some apologetics as we go through the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It is important because the scripture says that be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you, right? So it is reasonable, it is right, it is appropriate for us to understand what we believe and why we believe it so that we can give an answer. It is appropriate for us to have reasonable foundation for our faith, to know what that is and to be able to articulate to, to others. There's a balancing truth, though, as well. And it's what we find in this verse. If one wills to know his will, Christ says, then he will know that the teaching is true. In other words, if one is, is uh, unwilling to submit themselves, if one is unwilling to hear about who Christ is, if one is unwilling to, to submit to God's will, then it's not an intellectual problem. It is not one of arguing someone into understanding who Jesus is. In fact, you can never argue into belief someone who is unwilling to believe. And Jesus is pointing this out. You have a whole group of scholars. You have a whole group of religious leaders who refuse to embrace who Jesus Christ is. The problem is not an intellectual one. The problem is not one based on knowledge. The problem is that they are unwilling. They do not will to know God's will. And so what we see here, first of all, is the foolishness that is, is, is typical here, this, this hypocrisy of rejecting Christ's authority. Let's back up for a moment in the passage and go to the very beginning, and this is what we saw um, last week, and I just want to touch on it once again. In verses 1 through 9, we see that Jesus' own, own uh, earthly kin, his own family, encouraged him to go on ahead, to, to go to Jerusalem to reveal himself. He refuses to do so, but it, it notes in verse 5 that his brothers did not believe in him. Now, can you imagine that? Those who knew Jesus intimately, those who, who had spent time with him, those who observed him on a day-to-day -day basis, 
Those who had the best opportunity to learn of Jesus, yet they reject. They do not believe in him. Now, of course, we know that after his resurrection, many did believe. And so the problem was not that what they had learned about Jesus was inconsistent with his claims. Because eventually they did believe. But it notes in this passage that his own brothers, those who had lived with him, we, we might call them his half-brothers. Or perhaps John is using the term in a, in a little bit looser way. His, his family, his kin, did not believe in him. That reveals the foolishness of rejecting what one can see. They question his teaching. They don't embrace who he claims to be. And then we see the religious leaders reveal their own hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of rejecting Jesus' authority. Look, look with me in verse 17, continuing where we were just reading. If anyone wills, to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether he speaks of himself or his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness in him. Now, verse 19, he points out their hypocrisy. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Moses gave you the law. In fact, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who, who many of whom were experts in the law. They knew the law. They, they honored the law. They spoke of the law as true, yet Jesus points out, you're hypocrites. This law that you claim to believe, you don't submit yourself to. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. And if you don't even live out what you claim to believe relative to the law of Moses, how is it that you will understand who Jesus is? They're doing the very opposite of what they claim to accept. They're not really following the Mosaic law. Instead, they're using it to control other people and to make themselves look good. There's an old proverb that says, there's none so blind as those who will not see. Now, verse 27, Jesus says, you know where I'm from. You see, the problem of his, his origin, this whole Galilee versus Bethlehem conflict, is really a distraction to avoid admitting. And in verse 27, he points out that his credentials Really, he raises the stakes in verses 28 and 29. Jesus cried out in the temple, You know me, you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus raises the stakes. It's not about Galilee. It's not about Bethlehem. We, we know that the scriptures will fulfill, were fulfilled in Jesus, but it's really that he's from God that is the point of contention. And so they come to arrest him. They come to take him captive. The leadership now sends in, um, in the following verses an entourage to take him up. And of course, they're unable to do so because this is not, this is not in God's plan. He says, then I am with you only for a short time, then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, you will not find me, that where I am you cannot Come, verses 33 and 34. This perplexes them. They're standing there trying to figure out a riddle, and Jesus 
quietly slips away. Now, Jesus is talking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but of course they have no idea. And Jesus moves on. Again, really making them look foolish, pointing out their hypocrisy. But we also see in this context there are those who do accept. We see it a couple different places, and it's scattered throughout the passage. In verse 17, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak my own authority, hinting that there will be those who will embrace who he is, those who will follow him. Look at verse 40. Many from the crowd, when they had heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, and they were right. It was appropriate claim for who he is. Go down to verse 50. You'll recognize the name in verse 50, Nicodemus. This is the one who came to Jesus by night, being one of them. Right? Nicodemus, all the way back in chapter 3 of John, right? you remember Nicodemus, this leader, comes to Jesus to inquire of him. He is the one that speaks up. Is it lawful to judge a man before he hears him and knows what he is doing. So he raised a point of contention. We can't, we can't convict a man without basis. We can't unjustly convict this man. It's not lawful and in some sense defends Jesus. Now, I will tell you that um, Nicodemus is said to have eventually believed in Christ. Um, the history of the early church lets us know um, that Nicodemus was one of the early followers of Christ, and so we don't know exactly when here in the book of John his heart turned to belief, but it is even possible that even as he speaks these words, he has come to believe or is, is in the process of journeying towards belief in Christ. There are those who knew who Jesus was, but it was because they were willing to be convinced. Their heart was open to who Jesus was. And for those in that situation, the, the theme of this passage comes through. That the work of Jesus confirmed who he claimed to be. The work of Jesus, all he said, all he taught, all he did, the miracles that he performed pointed to who he was. And so the question for us this morning here in chapter 7 is what will we do with Jesus? How will we respond as we behold who he is in the scripture? As we encounter him through what is revealed to us, how will we respond to the person of Jesus? Jesus Christ was the one that provided the gospel, the, the good news. The only means that we have of hope because in him we find salvation. Jesus Christ, we've said it before, is the, the son of God who, who lived forever in the presence of God and came to earth. We'll see as we go through this passage that, that what Jesus predicts in verses 35 and 36 came true. He was taken to his death. He was, he was put on a cross, a, a tool of torture, and killed. Oh, but he resurrected. And the third day, he proved that he has the authority to forgive sin, to offer salvation to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. If you will come to him this morning in faith and repentance, that is depending on completely on Jesus Christ and turning from your own way, he will save you from sin. 
Most of you who are listening this morning, if not all, would claim to have had a point in in life where you have repented, you have turned from yourself and depended on Jesus Christ. How do we treat him in our daily life? Do we treat him as as Lord, as we sang about this morning, In, in submission to him day by day? Do we remind ourselves frequently of the gospel and live in the light of the gospel? As we behold him, even in the pages of scripture, how do we respond? Do we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ? Do we, in in, in our daily lives, as we think through the things that we're doing, as we abide in Christ, as, as we'll talk about in coming chapters? We're reminded this morning from this passage of scripture that Jesus' work confirms who he is. Father, we thank you for these moments that we've had together in your word. We pray that you would continue to convict our hearts, that we would be reminded often of who Jesus is, and that we would submit to his lordship, even as we've sung about this morning in our time of worship. May we behold you and behold wonderful things out of your law. May we, as Jesus said, will to know God's will. May we submit to the truth of who Jesus Christ is.